the reason I'm meditating is so that the next time I'm sitting in front of a Hanuman statue, experiencing some transcendent bliss, I'm not drowning it out with a machine gun rattle of 70 questions regarding what that is. Hi, Duncan. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Good to see you, David. Can you hear us okay, Duncan? I hear you fine. Do I sound okay? Yep. You do. Yep. We're all good. Beautiful. So just to give every, I mean, maybe many people know the antecedents of the Be Here Now podcast network, which is in its sixth anniversary. We have a whole program going around for its sixth anniversary. And uh, so, this is an oft-repeated story, but it's worth, especially given the uh, anniversary of the network, Duncan, who had known about Ramdas from early age through his mom, and then uh, and sort of ignored it for a while, then came back to it, and then eventually found Ramdas and a way to speak directly to him, because Ramdas used to do Skype, individual Skype sessions, which he did, and got inspired enough to write to Info, because he didn't know who I was, and say, you ought to do a podcast, because you could just take some of Ramdas's talks and introduce them, and it'll be very popular. Well... Six or seven years later, I think we started before the network, actually. Here we are with this extraordinary uh, network with uh, such a robust platform of, of listeners. And now includes people like Alan Watts and Jack Cornfield, Sharon, who was here earlier today, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and David Nickturn. <laughs> who just joined about a year ago, I think. Yeah. That is such... I, I will never accept credit for that. That's like, there's radio, and then TV comes, and your friend has a radio show, and you say, maybe you should do a TV show. It's not really like anything that I did, but I will accept the... Uh, I'll accept whatever that is. It just didn't, you would have done it no matter what. No, I had no idea, even though I had been in radio and I knew enough to know what was what it was, but there was a modus operandi in many different ways that you, you forget. You took me through, gave me the exact names of all the equipment that I needed. How to... Oh, it's very complex. Yes, it is, I know. <laughs> You need a microphone and a computer. I think I probably told you you need a microphone and a computer. It was ah. inspiration at the very least, okay? Okay, thank you. I'll accept that. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I'm still going to call you Guruji, absolutely. Okay. All right. So, but what happened is, so, and then Duncan came along to retreats in Maui and met Ram Dass. That's a whole other story. And... As he did that and talked about it on the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, many, many, many next-gen people started coming to the retreats and introduced, uh, Ramdas was introduced to a whole new uh, segment 
and uh, that uh, changed things up in a big way because that's what Ram Dass wanted. He wanted to make sure that these teachings and this information and legacy got out to the next generation on platforms that they were used to connecting with. And, and then he slowly, Duncan slowly got into the rhythm of Hindu bhakti thing and uh, dealing with the reality of what Neem Karoli Baba is. It was wonderful. Then one day, he turned on us. <laughs> and off he went into this Buddhist thing, which he's never returned from, or, and we've never recovered. And this man... <laughs> it's his fault. It's his fault. So tell me, you guys, tell me what really happened there. <laughs> David made more sense. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, well, that's a good point now. I want you to tell me how David made more sense. Because this is... Look, I, I'm so sorry. That was a cheap joke. No, I, it's I, not a joke, though, because this retreat is called... One of the subtitles is Love and Reason. So sense is part of reason. Right. You dismissed, you unfortunately just dismissed the love and went right to the reason. <laughs> See, you bhakti people. It's always like that, isn't it? You dismiss the love. Well, look, I don't know. Maybe I did. I just, the way, you know, what I love about those retreats is that it's set up for all kinds of minds, you know, not just, you know, there's so many different, obviously, everyone has a different way of looking at the world. And some people are going to be drawn to um, burning incense in front of, deities and, and and the bhakti thing. I've, I've chanted Hare Krishna myself. I still do. But, you know, the way my mind is, is, you know, I had some, I think, precursor stuff before I got to the other stuff that I still am working on, you know. And I think that's where the Buddhist stuff is quite uh, pragmatic, I guess is the best way to put it, is because it, it, there isn't really a, a... The way my mind works, and I think the reason David... And I, one of the reasons we started our friendship, there's a lot of reasons, was because at one of these retreats, I think I was asking you, if everything changes, what about Hanuman? Does Hanuman die? Hanuman, is that what you said? Yeah. Excuse me? Don't you remember? He came. No. Nick Turn said Hanuman's impermanent and when you were on the stage in Maui. Yeah, I know. I don't know what he said. Yeah. And then we were trying to we were trying to vet whether the deities are in the impermanent realms. Oh, oh, I yeah. see. Remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah Coming yeah, back? No. Yeah. 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 So, but everybody's got to figure that out for themselves, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I sure don't remember what your answer was for that. I'd love to hear it. What is, what is the, what is the general answer when it comes from that worldview regarding the permanence of deities? I have no idea <laughs> whatsoever. I I also, when I went to India, like Ramdas, I wasn't that into Hinduism and the myriad of gods and goddesses and statues and all of it. But somehow, uh, after we were introduced to Hanuman, and particularly the Hanuman Chalisa, and a couple of this, the, the statues that were representing him that Maharaji had in his ashrams, I suddenly started... It, it was a connection that I could not put in words, but it felt good. So I didn't care. 
and then this representation, a, a statue of Hanuman that was Ramdas arranged and was brought to Taos, New Mexico, where it resides today. Uh, and it was part, uh, created by Sidima K.K. Shah, Ramdas's Indian brother. And uh, it was, it is absolutely extraordinary in its transmission, particularly of compassion. Yeah. And uh, the way that I connected with that was beyond me thinking about, you know, any of these kinds of issues in terms of, I mean, people say, well, this is a myth, isn't it? So what do you, you know, I, I go, I have no idea, except that when I sit and do the chalisa in front of that statue, there's a deep connection that happens, and whenever I, I do the chalisa on a regular basis, but in times of uh, trouble, Mother Mary comes to me through Hanuman. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I've, I think you would be. I, I would. I have. Ex I know exactly what you're talking about. I, it, when I was younger and started going to the Hare Krishna temples, I felt that that what I don't know what that is, and um, certainly in front of the retreats, you know, sitting in front of the Hanuman deity, you you experience something that's so profound and beautiful. And the uh, honestly, like it's a prerequisite for you to enjoy the effect of whatever that may be. The thing has to be eternal. I think that's, you're setting the bar a little too high, right? Like, who cares? I don't know. Does he get old? I don't know. Does he, uh, does his body break down like human bodies break down? Is there entropy in that world? That's how my mind works, which is why uh, it's nice just to meditate so I can learn how to not get stuck. In those. And it put down there, yes. Well, Hanuman, you know, may be eternal or might be that it's uh, temp temporal. And uh, you're just meditating because, you know, the reason has really uh, encouraged you to that, you know, becomes a, a path that you can grasp. Right? Yeah, no, I didn't mean a left. I mean, like, the reason I'm meditating is so that the next time I'm sitting in front of a Hanuman statue experiencing some transcendent bliss i'm not drowning it out with a machine gun rattle of 70 questions regarding what that is can it be quantified what if i invented a device to measure it can we measure this is there a way to like understand what it is maybe it's a potential power source can we power our homes with it is this some kind of you know what i mean this is why meditation works as a nice um uh creating some space so that when you are lucky enough that you might be experiencing that you can let your mind prattle on about that stuff without being uh, swept into one of those questions and suddenly you're writing some like essay about the uh, Hahnemann, a new element or something, some ridiculous short story or whatever. This is why I think the two work very well together, even though within, uh, if you want to break it up into two categories, you, those two categories, you do find like some wonderful... Uh, uh, pushback, you know. I, I always loved that that Ramdas would bring the bhaktis and the Buddhists together, and I always enjoyed the many hilarious, never-ending conversations, like the one Ramdas would have with Roshi Joan Halifax. I mean, I could remember sitting at the table when you brought me over there, and Ramdas said, 
you know, this is just my fantasy. And Roshi Joan goes, finally, after all these years, you admit it. And I realized, oh my God, this playful communication between them has been going on for their entire lives. And I think there's really something beautiful in that. Uh, and, and that it, it, whatever that is, is uh, beneficial for these two things that seem like potentially different sides, but they're not really that different at all. Yeah. We're just right, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> Your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> I had a nice conversation with one of the people here yesterday, and I asked him, do you follow the path of the heart or the path of clarity? And he said, path of the heart. I said, try the other one. And I think these particular gatherings that we have illuminate both the path of the heart and the path of clear seeing. So if you lean towards one side, you know I'm from the middle way tradition within the Buddhist world, and the two extremes that we avoid are theism and nihilism, right? Those are the two extreme views. So if you've fixated strongly on the external existence of a deity uh, or money or um, your own existence as a kind of fixed solid entity, um, you need more clarity because you can easily dismantle that with just a few clear perceptions about the nature of your own existence, for example, which you can see is clearly impermanent. This gathering is impermanent. We're getting more and more impermanent every minute. <laughs> so impermanence becomes, you know, but if you attach to the impermanent side, then it becomes nihilistic. And, um, you know, there's an attachment to the negation. So I don't think there's any discrepancy at the end of the day, but it depends on the individual um, practitioner and what they're working with in terms of their own mind stream. And for some people, just dropping the intellectual paraphernalia and just finding something they can really connect with through the heart and love is really a great path, really beautiful. And so I'm, I've been enriched personally by these gatherings. I'm very um, grateful to Raghu and KD and Ramdas uh, because I feel there's a nurturing energy here and everybody's welcome. And um, I personally have felt welcomed and included. So I think that's the biggest picture. Within that, you know, we, we're trying to find um, a way to be. I think that's, isn't that what we're all sharing? Finding a way to be, mm. a way to be genuine, a way to be, have a good human life. And that's by far the most important umbrella dimension of it. So that's what I would say. And that's pretty much what we are, the theme of the retreat, that what David just expressed, really points to it, I believe. You know, uh, Bob is here. Bob Thurman. Duncan, you remember Bob? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I love him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's been uh, a lot of fun and a lot of wisdom at the same time, which is what he is. But he, uh, so everybody here, I want to introduce to Duncan that letter that Bob read last yesterday. Well, getting at some basic, though, about why this theme has been the uh, 
focus point of this retreat and why it's been that way, actually, even though we've had many different themes over the years at retreats, as Duncan, as you said earlier, the reality is that that thing, like Ramdas used to, as soon as he speak about soul he'd look at the buddhist on his right (laughs) i'm so sorry that we're talking about soul i know you don't and and that would enliven the conversation around uh, you know the intersection really of 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 the tradition of bhakti and buddhism and uh so one of the things that we established early on here at this retreat was it's easy to go into bhakti and do a lot of end arounds, right? In terms of heart and in terms of what uh, our day-to-day experience is in moving through and transition, uh, transforming rather uh, emotional difficulties, habitual patterns, neurotic tendencies. That has to be attended to. So we agreed on that. And then Buddhist uh, Ramdas used to say all the time, the crystal clarity of Buddhism entraps people in their minds and they are bypassing their heart. So there's a bypass going on potentially in each of these practices. And how do we bring them together is the core of what we've been talking about this weekend. There, there's a funny twist here, you know, for me personally, which is, um, you know, only in um, tantric Buddhism do we talk about guru. There is no guru in the Hinayana and Mahayana yeah. traditions. So there's a Kalyanamitra, like spiritual friend and a yeah. preceptor. So all of a sudden, the embodiment of a particular, of a human being, actually, somebody in a body, becomes key to your progression on your path. And in that way, it's very similar. I have more kinship with your tribe on that point than I do with the um, mm. Theravadan and right, Ma- right. Mahayana schools. Yeah, that's that's something that's more in common. And um, but what you know, you can clear. You use clarity to clear something away, debris. You know, and and. This thing about soul is a pretty easy one from a Buddhist perspective. And I haven't heard anybody really address it like doctrinally. I mean, Professor Thurman could do it. But Buddha's main teaching was anatman, you know, no, no atman. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ego. There was, wasn't such a word then really or soul. Yeah. So what is atman? That would be, and is, is there such a thing or not would be the key point in that the conversation. Is there a, and what my understanding of it is, you, you would have a deeper one, is a permanent, independent, self-existing sense of a solid identity. Does, is that so? Is that there to me, a, it's like the end around still. Yeah? You, yeah. It that, seems so. Yeah, that we're going to take that I that I, we identify with. Right. That is, as Krishnadas talks about, the movie of me, which Duncan and yeah. I have been working on for years, talking about that is not atman that is not atman but so what is atman is it is it actually i have no idea 
<laughs> of course, I have no idea. But uh, <laughs> well, no, it's a specific word that's describing a specific. Uh, you phenomenon. know, we are all doing this work right. to discover that the nature of that true self, whatever you, I, I'm, you yeah. want to call. I'm more prone to do that than soul because of my. Uh, you know, in my entire life, my interest has been more in that direction. Uh, but after meeting Maharaji, I know absolutely everything is possible. There is nothing that's not, not possible. And uh, it's, it's just whatever gets sent my way to give me a more profound understanding of what that true nature is. I don't no. care so much about the names. Okay, all. Yeah, I understand. Uh, Duncan. Yes. So, self, what about it? What about it? What do you mean? Like identity? Yeah. Is there, a, is there a fixed identity? A Duncan, I mean, a pure identity, a true nature of Duncan that exists somehow permanently, eternally? There was, but I sold it. <laughs> you sold it? And that's when I became a Buddhist. Yeah. You know, I don't look. I, 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 I knew I don't, it. Don't say that. I We're in the Bible you Belt. I, I, you, I, this, you know, I, I, um, I think that there's so many definitions floating around here that it would be easy to get lost in all those definitions. And I, you know what, I love what you've taught me about absolute and relative reality. Yeah. Uh, or I think and I always mispronounce it, but I remember in, when I was studying Bhakti yoga, there was some term that meant simultaneous oneness and difference, mm. which kind of reminds me of the, the same thing. And like when you're talking about the wonders of, of the, the infinite wonders that you have both, you know, witnessed in your own way, I think one of those is that the universe can is expressing itself as temporary, fleeting, transient individuals and obviously as some whole, which, you know, in the, it's happening at the same time. And, and, some, and, and uh, you know, when you're talking about this uh, conceptualization of theism or absolute reality and uh, uh, nihilism, um, you're talking about how within that kind of system, you can get stuck in one or the other. You can get so hyper condensed into your identity. You're trying to be your Twitter bio or something. You're, I, for, I forgive, but I never forget. That's who I am, right? That's me or whatever it is. And then you get condensed into that and you, it hurts. It hurts. You, it's like when you're, when you haven't been stretching, you just get all stiff. And, but it's also, you, you could run away from that into this, like, well, I'm nothing at all. And then, I mean, isn't that something that Ramdas said? Like, look, you need to know your social security number. You got to pay your credit card bill. You, when someone's calling and saying you like, you owe us money, you can't be like, oh, well, I'm everything. So get it from one of my friends because they're me too. It's so, you know, so I think that uh, all of these, if you want to talk about a trap on both sides, on both sides of the trap will be getting lost in the terminology to the point where you're living in some kind of congealed, you know, like, I don't know, on Thanksgiving, I, I haven't done it in a long, the dressing for the turkey, you know, like it stays out too long. It gets this thick, nasty, congealed <laughs> crust on the top. That's what happens if you get lost in the terminology. And then, and I remember what Chogim Trumpa said, if, if you experience or encounter the real thing, it is not, it's fresh baked bread. 
It feels like something coming out of the oven. It's just good and fragrant and good. This is how I feel playing with my kids. This is how I feel when like, my, you know, I'm actually like inspired to create something. Wh whatever that may be, I, I don't know. Is that Hahnemann? Is that fundamental goodness? I, I don't know. But I think that in the, you know, hopefully these practices, when you find yourself at the precipice of the next decision, and it's the decision you always make that drives you into either a more condensed version of you or, 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 or drives you out of the reality of your, uh, as Ram Dass said, you're taking the curriculum, you know, it drives you out of the reality of your own life. Whenever you're on the precipice of that, if you can remember, if you can remember, even, even if you barely understand what it means, love, love, intention. This time I'm not going to hurt. You know, this time I'm going to, this time as much as I can, I'm not going to keep doing that thing that burrows me deeper and deeper into that stinky, crusty stuff on the top of the Thanksgiving dressing. Nobody wants that. It's disgusting. Dogs won't even eat it. So to me, that's where I, you know, uh, anytime I've been around you, Ramdas or Raghu or, or my kids or people who are like in the moment and that thing happens, it's like, this is it. Does this last forever? I want it to. But then that's when you start trying to grab it and pocket it. And that's when you want to wear the bead that represents the time you were in the presence of the thing. And, or, you know, uh, sometimes it's so, so unbearable, you, do, you, you don't think you deserve it. And so then you imagine it never happened or something. But do you know, I'm, does that make sense? It's like, I'm interested in the pragmatic application of these things. What does it look like on the ground? What does it look like? And for me, what it looks like is right before I do the thing that has inevitably alienated people around me, has inevitably made me win maybe, or but certainly long-term has just made my life dim. You know, anytime these teachings are like, help me stop doing that. Even if I'd still continue to do it, but less, this is where it becomes really interesting to me because that's when stuff really starts lighting up. That's when you really see Einstein's hippie love light everywhere. And that's to me where this you know, stuff really makes sense. Yeah. Uh, one other uh, great uh, Bob's definition of love is, is worth uh, mentioning right now, which is the will to make others happy. Yes. That that's is great. the big, big deal to me right there, because that that's the action. That's, Getting out, it's what you and I have been talking about as Krishnanas' movie of me all these years. It's the action that takes you out of that, what Bob called today, the addiction of me, actually. And that, so it, it entails a being in that place and an action, a will to make others happy. Yeah. Intention. Hey, David, remember that time we were doing that class? <laughs> It was one of the most, it was one of my worst experiences in the, the spiritual universe. We're speaking of addiction to ego. We're doing this class or uh, you were doing a meditation course and I was, we were doing a podcast or something. And at the time I was really edgelording and you said something about intention. Do you remember this? And I said, I don't think intention matters. And I think you said, well, do you remember what you said? 
to me. You said something on the lines of that's really dumb. <laughs> and it hurts <laughs> so bad. And because you were right. And it hurts. And it, you know, it, it hurt. It, but I do love that. You know, the intention of love or however you want to, if, if you don't understand love, the intention of like light, enlightenment, lightening up, the intention of helping, whatever it may be, replacing that ego addiction thing with just in that moment, like, how can I help? There must be something I could do here to help. Wow, that, that's to me, that's the mantra or the on, that's the feet on the ground thing. If, you know, if you've managed like me to really work yourself into some pretty, you know, dark places, probably over the course of infinite lifetimes, I'm sure, I'm sure I was robbing graves not that many lifetimes ago. Um, I just remember something. I'm changing the subject back to Hanuman, by the way. He's right there. Uh, Hanuman is right here. He is right there. Yeah. Uh, I, I just remembered, uh, it's something Krishnasa note, and I have noticed that when we were first going to Kenchi, where Maharaji, the temple, was in the Himalaya, there was, it's no longer there. They took it down or something, but over the arch, of the entrance, it said, the Advaita Nimkaroli Baba Hanuman Temple. Non-dual? And we were like, non-dual Hanuman? Oh. What, what is, how did that happen? And it, it, I am assuming very, very purposeful by Maharaji. And uh, so that gave a whole other insight into what that representation is of Hanuman, the monkey god. Mm. Non-dual. So when you're talking about, uh, is it, it, does he decay and die, or is it you know eternal and non? It's non-dual. So that gives a little bit of a hint there, and maybe more of a hint. Uh, I'm. This is just what I was just thinking about my own predilection for feeling connected to this monkey. You know, it's been amazing all these years. So, right, there's a, that's where the Buddhist and Bhakti thing, he put it on the sign, basically. On the sign. On the, it's on the sign, yeah. Mm. It used to be, anyhow. Yeah, so just to maybe... Sh um create a slightly different envelope for the conversation a slightly different envelope the realm of thought you know discursive narrative thought which is where um we spend arguably 99 percent of our time i mean just simply looking at that is what are we doing most of the time thinking right about this or that or the other thing so in buddhism that's called the sixth consciousness first five are just the sense perceptions the way they are so when you see something, you don't need to develop a narrative about it in order to interact with it in a very pure way. It's called pure perception. And the simple practice of somehow reducing our addiction to that discursive mind, either through devotional practice or through you know, mindfulness type of practices, awareness practices, um, and, and not to try to annihilate it or destroy it or think of it as a problem, but it's just like an overgrown thicket. And... 
I think, can everybody relate to that idea that the, the discursive mind is like really thick and heavy and creates a lot of stories that we get trapped in, just a simple way of looking at it? Mm. So we start pruning that one way or another. Uh, and, and if you can do that without thinking of it as a bad thing or something that you have to repress, that's really good. You know, that's the right way to do that. Um, but just to see the space element in it, the spacious element in it. And that really requires somehow or other slowing down because it has a lot of speed. The way our discursive mind is sort of goes, it has a lot of in inertia, right, and momentum and speed. So some kind of practice where you settle. Uh, and then, you know, the way that the mantra's role here is you're bringing your mind back to the mantra. The man mantra means mind protection. So the way we're doing the mantras in the evening is just to keep your mind sort of circulating with the mantras. And if you get lost in, oh, I don't, my car, I forgot where my car is parked and I'd have to be in, back in, uh, you know, Virginia tomorrow morning and I'm going to miss my plane. And, and Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, you, you come back. And I told KD one time, I said, you're really teaching shamatha style practice there because you're saying bring your mind back to the mantra. And shamatha, the, the object of the meditation doesn't have to be the breath necessarily. It could be anything. It could be a mantra. It could be a visual cue, any of the sense fields. So I just think there might be a universal way for us all to just go, let's settle in a little, agree that we're moving too fast as a, as a culture and create some kind of um, re-stabilizing uh, practice. And, and that could be pretty broad and pretty simple. No? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> so, you know, we're ingesting here a lot of ideas from a lot of people. And I know this morning everybody sat a little bit, yes? Can you do some sitting practice, just sitting? Yeah, how did that feel? We should do that regularly as a group, right? Just make sure that we're leaving some space to just be um, and, exp and experience each other and the warmth of getting together as, as uh, friends, Sangha. Mm -hmm. That's, that transcends really anything we're going to characterize here, in my, in my opinion. Yes. Hmm. There was one other thing that I wanted to bring up because uh, part of what we're doing, as you were talking about uncovering, and Spring Washam talked about it, Sharon Salzberg, Bob, everybody. That's the process. And one of the, of course, most imp important of the Buddhist principles and most valuable is around constant change, anitya, impermanence. And it's, uh, we haven't really talked about that so far, right? And I was just thinking about it because myself, I became, uh, this morning in the first session, when Spring led that meditation, I was tired and I started to nod, you know, and just feeling, you know, when you have tiredness in your body, it was uncomfortable. So I started thinking about, wow, this is really uncomfortable. And I thought, I'm sitting there in a mindfulness meditation. I can't just ignore it. So I thought, okay, I'm just... I'll just be with it and, and notice that the beauty of impermanence, it's not that just the joyous, pleasurable stuff won't last. The shitty stuff doesn't last either, right? And sure enough, it started to change. I could feel it change, you know, as I let go of, of, the, of the tiredness. But uh, 
I think there's such a practical application for us, uh, even in something as small as that was for me, I think it, it, it serves uh, to help just get a little bit more friendly, shall we say, with discomfort and suffering. How about a little comment on that, Mr. Nickter? How about Duncan? Duncan, yeah. Oh, great. Uh, well, you know, I, um, your book, David, uh, Awakening from the Daydream, um, I love it. It's the Buddhist wheel of life, but, you know, not just looked at literally the realm of the gods, the human realm, animal realm, jealous gods, hell realms, but uh, also how we cycle through those throughout the day, you know, and um, what I, you know, since I've read that book, I've gotten into some of the like traditional scriptures and I, uh, the depiction of like the realm of the gods and the hell realms are interesting in that there's this change seems to be happening in a slower way. And people might think this is a good thing, but the, this results in a kind of uh, uh, quality being trapped. You know, if you're you're stuck. You know, if you're if you have this infinite lifespan and you're uh, able to experience whatever sense gratification you're looking for at any given moment, as delightful as that might seem, uh, if you read it for the first time, it actually I think there's a reason the realm of the gods in the mandala is like uh, parallel to the hell realms, because both of them, what they have in common is this stuckness. The thing that horrifies people, change, or that can be so terrifying, is actually start removing that or slowing it down, fulfill the transhumanist dream of uh, becoming an eternal being or turning your brain into silicon or something like that. And pretty soon you're going to realize you've essentially frozen yourself in ice, which is one of the hell realms. So yeah, change is something that is, uh, should be celebrated. And, you know, and I do think that this is where the headbutting will start between the bhaktis and the Buddhists is because a Buddhist might say, look, really, you have this unchanging eternal soul? You want that? That's bad news. You're trapped. That's stuck. You're like Han Solo in the, in the, in the whatever it was, that thing Jabba the Hutt put him in. You want that? You don't want that. You want your soul to get old fat, start losing its hair and eventually die or you are in trouble, man. You know, you don't want the thing to go on forever. So I think, yeah, change as something that isn't, is not only just uh, to be celebrated, but without that in every quantum aspect of what we are, then that means that we are essentially trapped in hell. There is no possibility of anything other than whatever this eternal, uh, unchanging thing that uh, people call the soul, uh, which isn't actually good news. Let's hope that's well, not and the case. Duncan, without using any of these, you know, triggering concepts, you know, that people might think of a certain way, just a simple Buddhist analysis would be that the source of suffering is grasping and fixation. That's what yeah. creates suffering. Just if you just take that home, when you grasp and you fixate, you create suffering down, down the line. And it doesn't matter what you're grasping or fixating onto. It, 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 but within the relative world, it's better to grasp and fixate onto sort of more positive things. <laughs> 
Right. If you're going to grasp and fixate, why don't you grasp and fixate onto the idea of being kind or uh, being gentle or being uh, compassionate? You know, also, uh, and I'm sorry, I know Han Solo is triggering to people. I'm sorry about that. But the the other, uh, in thinking about this stuff, I imagine if people were more aware of the transient nature of things and the the ecological disasters that are happening, even though sadly they're happening uh, faster and, and, and are exponentially going to happen faster. Imagine if we had the capacity to see the, the, the way these systems are changing, because if you, if you, if you aren't looking at graphs or grids or, you know, a series of pictures showing like shrinking glaciers or whatever, if it, you might not even recognize how quickly things are changing. And in that lack of recognition or ignorance, then you aren't quite as motivated to act, to do something. Obviously, it doesn't just apply to the environment. It applies to the interpersonal environment in your own life and to, to your body and to your to everything. Like this is, I mean, you know, in general, when you hear... Uh, qualities of someone who has been given a terminal diagnosis and is close to death, it's very rare that you hear someone say, oh, they became a complete jerk. Oh, they were horrible. You didn't like when people are close to death, they just become so mean. I know it happens sometimes, but my experience with it has been this clarity, this lucidity, this, I don't want to say seriousness, but a sense of like wanting to get into the truth as quickly as possible appears. And so if that appears because someone is close to dropping their body uh, and they know it, then really that would imply that if we became aware of that prior to the diagnosis, then maybe that would inspire a similar kind of uh, way of being. There wouldn't be such a attitude of procrastination when it, when, when it came to getting down to the point of things. So I hate to be, because I want to address you, you brought that topic up and it's probably more accurate to include when you talk about impermanence, the notion of continuity as well. Hmm, that's, so. that's the dance because the, the word Tantra in Tibetan means continuity. Something is continuing. Mm-hmm. That's where every, everybody could sort of with clarity of mind, you see there's no real uh, discrepancy between the idea of continuity and the idea of impermanence. Mm-hmm. But what is it that's continuing is what you were saying, that's what you're trying to find, right? Yeah. At the beginning, weren't you saying but, that? Uh, yeah, in, in simpler terms, yeah. I'm not, you know, continuity, I mean, that's a, a, a big word. Yeah. Just in terms, tr- I, true nature is much more relatable to me. You know, who am I behind the I that is in the day-to-day process of believing in thoughts and stories and falling back on habitual tendencies? You're so my bubbler. I, I know that, Dave. <laughs> <So you are. laughs> Yeah, so yeah, you know. yeah, we're both saying the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but impermanence would be the nihilistic one. Continuity could be the theistic uh-huh. one. But if you can put them together into a um, a sense of being, our being is pervaded by impermanence, like the way Duncan's talking about it, and it's also pervaded by a sense of continuity. Sometimes a false sense of continuity mm-hmm. based on a small sense of self. Yeah, does that make and sense? That's the key right there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Duncan, it's, it may be painful, but we both really love you. <laughs> I love you guys. Are you kidding? That's not painful. It used to be a long time ago. I'll take it. Man. I love you guys. So I love you so much. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, talk, speaking uh, about love, actually, I've always wanted to ask you something about love. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's a story from Ramdas at one point at Naropa in 74 when he made his, those first talks and retreat about the Bhagavad Gita uh, at Naropa when it opened. He said, at one point, I, we were driving somewhere and I had to go somewhere and I was in a car full of his uh, Trumpa students. And, you know, they had been making fun of me all, whenever I talked about Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, in the way that I talked about him in the bhakti devotional sense. So I shut up and I'm in the car, he says, and suddenly his students are speaking of him in exactly the same term and endearment uh, that I would have, you know, with Maharaji. And I went, aha, yeah. I see what's going on. But I've never asked you. And so David uh, was a, is a student of Trungpa Rinpoche's and spent a bunch of time with him. And uh, yeah, what is your love relationship there? Well, we call it unrequited <laughs> Does that ring a bell? No. You can never get back that which you need to project onto that person. It'll never come back that way. Mm -hmm. So how is that? It's like loving a mirror. Yeah, right. You want to make out with the mirror. You want to take the mirror home. You want to domesticate the mirror. And the mirror yeah. just stays very lucid you know in in my experience that's one aspect aspect yeah. of it there was another aspect which went beyond the reflection completely into another zone which i couldn't identify yeah. at all so i am sure that that zone was going on with trumpa no well i mean this is uh, in a way i feel like we've been waiting years to have this chat you know it's, yeah, it's so great we haven't had yeah, yeah. um but yeah, I think it would be undying and unconditional love that mixes with the heart at the level of relational love. You know, this is the funniest person, the most delightful yeah, yeah. person, the most challenging person, the most uh, uh, enduring person. Even if they die, it doesn't seem to matter all that much. Mm. I think that's a similarity. Chung mm -hmm. uh, um in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, you do a guru yoga practice where the guru is sitting on top of your head but is facing this or she is facing the same way as you are mm. so it's like the mixing of the minds mm. and at that point i think the non-dual the advaita thing is like that's it. could yes. you say that you know that uh, maharaji is really a separate thing at this point in your life isn't it part of your fabric too yeah no no yeah. that that is the absolute truth of uh the advaita part that yeah. was on that sign there is, it's not a uh, me and you. There, there's, the polarization is gone. But the, the vehicle for that, uh, losing the polarization, is the guru yana. Because only a human being can really show you that. Yeah. But the, I mean, you can make a leap. Some people have made this leap and somehow risen with this complete non-dual understanding of reality. Very few. But yeah. very few. Yeah. yeah, but in this instance, that's why what we got back then, which was the grounding in Vipassana particularly, because we were all going to those courses, and uh, how he used to 
encourage. And Krishnas told the story of the, the other day of him. He had a notebook and he had written part of Mahamudra. Did you, did mm-hmm. you hear that? You heard that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he had it translated and, and Maharaja said, Teak, you know, that's mm-hmm. right on. And then to turn the page, it wasn't a stamp. Krishnas can't remember some of these stories. It was, I was there. There was a picture <laughs> of him. Okay. And that, and that's when he said, who's that? And we mm-hmm. were like, huh? Mm-hmm. It's you. He go, Buddha, Nay Buddha. Buddha. So we had from the earliest stages of yeah. our, uh, shall we say, training with him, in the earliest stages, that became a prominent uh, aspect of what it was that we yeah. started to embody. Right. And, and now here we are with uh, all of Ramdas's best friends were Buddhist. Okay. And many, and we all had relationship with them as well. You know, I was with Joseph introduced me to Menindra back in that day at a course in Bodh Gaya. So uh, to have that as a nutshell, and I think, you know, I do believe we've been sharing this in retreat for many, many years, and we sort of have brought it out out of the closet a little bit. Duncan? Yes. Are you with us? Yeah, what? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I mean, I, I love it. Well, that was beautiful. I love hearing y'all talk. I, it, it truly one of my favorite things with these retreats is just eavesdropping these conversations between bhaktis and Buddhists. There, you all are like just infinitely trying to unravel whatever this thing is, and it's just a. I mean, it could be a sport almost. It's really cool to watch. I, I love it. It's, it's wonderful. Oh, I want to, because we're close to the end of the session, please, because uh, I think this, when we're talking about unraveling and the ways in which we can unravel the stuff that prevents us from even approaching unity in, in the heart, uh, it's practice. And we've been talking about it for the entire time we've been here and the importance of it. And I just wanted to mention, and David has some wonderful uh, courses coming up that please do let us know well, how we can access them. So just in a nutshell, and, and by way of inviting all of you, um, the platform we've created is called Dharma Moon. So you can go to dharmamoon.com. It's all happening there. And what we have starting is a mindfulness meditation teacher training program. That's 100 hours. It's five weekends. It starts October 1st. You can take the first weekend um, um, as a standalone, it's a good overview. And our goal is just to get people grounded into the basic practice of um, mindfulness meditation as the foundation for anything else that we're going to talk about. Yeah, so, and how to communicate it skillfully to other people without getting them more confused than they already were. That's the sort of target of the, of the program. And Duncan has helped us to... Um, it's, there's just been a natural synergy in in the people who um, are, he has a weekly meditation, and Duncan and I are going to do an info session on Wednesday at 6 p.m. See you right on the front page of dharmamoon.com. And we'll, if you're interested, we'll tell you more about that program. Everybody here will be completely welcome. And I don't think you have to think of it as, oh, now I'm betraying the bhakti and becoming a, a, a Buddhist. Oh, no, he, <laughs> he sold his soul. He admitted it. Come on. <laughs> 
but it's true that mindfulness is a foundation that's good yeah. for you know good yeah. for the whole family and good mixer goes with everything yeah no absolutely just stabilizing your mind a little bit you know so yeah. you're all welcome to just check out dharmamoon.com you'll see the whole thing and i want to thank um duncan who uh it's like picking up a hitchhiker and then you realize that they're part of your family. <laughs> uh, that's good. You got a cigarette, man? I'm your brother. So, you know, in both these traditions, loyalty is a really important quality in the Sangha and that we just help each other out and have some kind of, um, even through rough patches, you know, uh, so I, I really treasure these retreats, and Raghu has been the glue, in my estimation, holding this together, and, and through a very difficult transition, you know, which is uh, Ramdas passing away. Uh, and what's interesting, he and I were talking about it, it's expanded since then, which mm. is, and I shared with Raghu, there's this phrase in, um, in the Buddhist world, when the guru dies, they say that that person enters the action, they become more accessible. I love that. So... If you were looking for Ramdas, it's all over the place. If you're looking for Maharaji, if you're looking for all the saints and siddhas, they're right here with us. Even um, Hanuman is, has been right up there for most of the talk that we've had going on here. Mm. So, you know, we're not isolated. We're part of a much larger fabric. And um, so thank you, Raghu, for including mm, me thanks, in that. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thank you. Can you just tell me one thing before we leave? I guess. Uh, this concept of loyalty. Yes. And, and what is that called? I've never really... Uh, heard that well i guess people would call it devotion or commitment uh -huh. that you don't be too fickle and don't give up like my teacher said i never give up on anybody ever mm. at all Trump. yeah really? i never give up on anybody so of course we're showing each other our inner gadarim and our dirty underwear and all that stuff so you could go oh this person's not worthy or they pissed me off or something like that but if you're in a sangha together you have to transcend that mm. so that's what i mean by loyalty uh-huh that's Right on sentiment, for sure, for sure. Duncan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you guys can find Duncan, as I said, Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast. Uh, we just did one that just came out on my Mind Rolling podcast with Duncan, uh, talking about these last six or seven years of our work together. And, uh, you know, really happy to have your podcast, too. What's it called? Uh, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. Okay. Talk about practicality. Yeah, David's book is of the same uh, title is, is phenomenal, too. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye, Duncan. Bye.